Hello, 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 and welcome to Just Law, the BC Law Podcast. You're joined by your happy hosts. I am Tom Blakely, and I'm a 1L still. And I am Kevin O'Sullivan, and I am a 3L. Time is going by far too quickly for me. You know, Tom, uh, you don't got to rub it in, and you having more time than I do, uh, frankly, causes me to dislike you. But we'll move past it. Uh, we are very happy today to be joined by Newton City Councilor Emily Norton, City Councilor for Ward 2. Councilor Norton was first elected in 2013. She was just re-elected in 2019. For Councilor Norton, this is not her day job. Councilor Norton's day job is as the Executive Director of the Charles River Watershed Association, which works in environmental advocacy, policy, and research. Councilor Norton, by that alone, and obviously what she does for the city council is deeply committed to environmental sustainability and advocacy. And one plan that Council Norton introduced was the Newton Power Choice Plan that was implemented in 2017, which allowed residents of Newton to contract for more renewable energy than required under state law. Also education is very important to Council Norton. So advocating for full day kindergarten, which was finally achieved in 2019, was another successful and important initiative. And then when faced with a measure to reduce the size of the city council by eliminating ward councilors, Councilor Norton advocated against that and said, you need to maintain this local representation, these local voices to ensure that these concerns are heard and worked on. So we are very happy to be joined by Newton City Councilor for Ward 2. Emily Norton. We decided to speak to Councillor Norton because she is the councillor for Ward 2, as Kevin mentioned there, which uh, encompasses, uh, with respect to the geography of Newton, both the BC Law uh, Newton campus, as well as part uh, of the main Chestnut Hill campus, and uh, a lot of concerns due to, due to COVID, both with respect to uh, operating local government during these times and how that works, uh, as well as, as you might remember, uh, early on in the semester, BC had a little bit of uh, difficulty there with managing COVID cases, which of course uh, is a concern both to the to the city and local residents since so we talk a little bit about uh, what was going on behind the scenes there with respect to the to the mayor and the council and concerned constituents and trying to keep uh, COVID numbers in check and keep everyone safe. Uh, we also spoke about uh, how exactly one operates a local government during COVID, how to have uh, public uh, city meetings online, how to uh, carry out the functions of local government at a time where we can't uh, all gather uh, at City Hall and some of those challenges. We also spoke a good deal uh, about what uh, the city of Newton means to Councillor Norton being from uh, the city at a time where uh, affordable housing is uh, hard to come by in the not only in Newton but in the greater Boston area and surrounding towns and communities. Uh, different proposals that have been uh, quite controversial to some extent in the media and within Newton with uh, respect to reforming housing and trying to find uh, a way for there to be more affordable places for people to stay and some of the repercussions and perspectives that people have both inside and out of Newton uh, in, in the media and elsewhere. Uh, with respect to the city that uh, for many of us, at least those of us on the law campus and those of us like myself uh, who live in the city call home and uh, trying to figure out exactly uh, how to solve some of these challenges in today's day and age. And we're very happy to have Councilor Norton joining us here today. Uh, Councilor, thank you for coming on tonight. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. Uh, well, the first thing I want to say, I just want to give my uh, condolences. I saw Councillor Sacconi uh, passed away recently. He was a dear friend of my dad. I was uh, sorry to see that. Uh, sorry to see him go. He was a great guy. Um, Thank you very much. No, he was a great guy and it was a shock to all of us. He was only 55, which may seem old to the two of you, but believe me, um, when you get to this stage, uh, it seems very, very young and he worked very hard and he worked um, you know, he was a son of Newton, uh, son of Nonantum, son of the lake, and was revered there, really loved when you would walk in the Memorial Day parade that ends in Nonantum. I would cross over from my ward, which is Ward 2, Newtonville, to Ward 1, and so many more people came out, you know, hey, Jay, hey, Jay. So he really was, uh, he really was well loved. Uh, he really looked out for people. He was the type of person who'd give you the shirt off his back, um, was just very no frills, just solid guy, and um, um, 
I, I already miss him and uh, feel particularly for his family. He's a very tight knit family. And it just, uh, just uh, they were robbed and we were all robbed. For sure. Yeah. He was, he was a, a great guy. Um, so in any events um, on that note, a more positive, uh, happier note. Um, again, thanks for coming on. I would just like to take a second to kind of introduce yourself to the listeners, talk about, you know, uh, how, how long you've been on the council, kind of your experiences there, what made you want to run and just kind of tell us whatever you'd like people to know about yourself. Sure. Thank you so much. So I grew up in Newton and uh, did not necessarily have a plan to move back here, but my mom offered us her house at half price, which is a great way to uh, come back to Newton and has actually uh, made Newton affordable for me. Like a lot of people um, uh, who grew up in Newton, Newton's really different than it was back in the day. I'm actually in the house I grew up in north of the Pike, which was a very um, sort of moderate income area. And uh, there really is no moderate income area of Newton anymore. Um, but it's great to be back in my um, home community. My kids are going to the schools, same schools that I went to. And my career is environmental policy and advocacy. So uh, it's been very rewarding for me to particularly lead on environmental issues within the city of Newton. We have something called Newton Power Choice um, through this program where Newton, uh, the city purchases electricity on behalf of the entire city. Um, uh, or more or less, uh, if you get into the details of that, but basically it allows uh, Newton to be, um, to, to purchase um, more green electricity, uh, more clean power than any other community in Massachusetts through that program. So I was pretty proud of that and was very involved in banning plastic bags and um, some other environmental initiatives. So that's been very rewarding, but uh, particularly being a ward counselor. So I only represent one eighth of the city, ward two, which is Newtonville and a bit, a bit on the edges of Newtonville. And it's, yeah, your ward counselor is usually your first person you reach out to when you have a very local issue. So I do find that great, very gratifying to help people, um, to help, um, to help government work for people on very specific local issues. So whether it's the stop sign or the pothole, or um, when I was first elected, someone reached out to me because National Grid had left a huge metal grate on their berm and it had been there for three years and they couldn't get anyone to get rid of it. And so I got rid of that metal grate and they were just, you know, so pleased. So sometimes those little things are the most gratifying. We're certainly gonna be talking a lot more about that tonight, Council, about local politics, what that means to the local community. But I, I want to take a step back and begin as you just began. I, I found it very moving, actually, to hear you say on your website, we live in the house I grew up in. I, I think that's beautiful for me, families, everything. So I want to start out by asking you, what does family mean to you, uh, especially in your role, especially as you see the city, you see the community, you see the neighborhood? And following from that, what does Newton mean to you? So Newton was an amazing place to grow up, um, particularly because there, like I said, um, the part of Newton that I grew up in was very um, moderate income, regular people. Um, I don't know if you know the term mush, um, but there were- I most certainly do. <laughs> okay, so, so just this is a true story. Uh, I grew up right where I live is right on the edge of Nonantum. And so there were kids from Nonantum who we, that I went to school with, Horace Mann Elementary School, FA Day Junior High. I was in the last ninth grade class at Day before it moved to Newton North. And that was, you know, mush talk was, you know, you hear it all the time. I thought it was everywhere. I thought it was like Valley Girl talk. It was all over the country. So when I left Newton and I was like, oh, please mush to someone. I don't remember where I was and said this. And they looked at me like, I was like, what is she saying? <laughs> and I was like, oh, I guess that's not everywhere. <laughs> so, um, so Newton was, you know, uh, just all I knew. And um, obviously my parents had moved here. My mother moved here when she was uh, divorced. Um, and was able to afford a house by herself and uh, moved here for the schools, which is what brings a lot of people uh, to Newton. So I was, um, I was very gratified that we were able to return to Newton and my kids can go to the schools that I went to. Um, and in some ways it did help me, um, well, it definitely helped me run for office because there's nothing like being from that community because you knock on someone's door, they're like, oh yeah, you went to school with my sister. Okay, I'll vote for you. I mean, it's kind of a <laughs> right, low bar. Right. Um, but also it helped me because sometimes if you, when you do things in public office, particularly if you try to step out and be kind of bold, you can tick some people off. And 
I was able to, and I'm still able to be comfortable with that because I didn't run for office to make friends. I didn't run for office to acquire a new social group. I have my friends and family here. So that- Love to hear um, that. Yeah, so it's, I think it's a good thing for anyone going into office to keep in mind like, okay, well, why am I doing this? Um, because there's gonna be times when you tick people off no matter what you do. Every time you vote on something, especially something controversial, whether it's development or marijuana or whatever, you're gonna have people on either side of it. So you have to do things because you think it's the right thing to do, not because you're trying to please this group or that group, because once people figure out that you're voting based on where the winds are, they'll know they can't really trust you. Whereas I, I like to think that um, even people who I make mad sometimes, they know that I'm doing things for the right reason. Um, because I really believe in it. I, I like to think that I do have that reputation and I've earned that reputation. I love that. I love that. As for any kind of dialect or accent, Tom and I have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, never have heard anything like it. And I, I, <laughs> no, we, we've, we've never been here before. Yeah. yeah. I don't know what's going on there, but you know. I don't know how our listeners understand the two of us some of the time, but uh, anyway. It's so funny. I don't have really much of a boss, maybe a little bit like drawing, things like that. That's a good when one. When I worked at, now, before you were born, there was a coffee shop in Harvard Square called the Greenhouse um, Cafe, Greenhouse Coffee Shop. Anyway, where, where there used to be Nini's Corner, it was the newsstand. Anyway, he also, Joe Nini also had a coffee shop. I was working there for like one month when I heard myself say, how many are you, party of four? Oh. I was like, oh my God, I need right to in leave. There. I need to leave. Yeah, wow. that's very funny. Yeah, that was, that's funny. It's actually something Kevin and I uh, were talking about. We actually both went to BC High in Dorchester. Uh, you, Kevin was a few years ahead of me, but I didn't have it before, you know, because I, uh, I went to Horace Mann and I actually went to, well, then I guess I acted up. So they sent me to Catholic school. I went to Jackson right there in Newton for a number of years. <laughs> And ultimately went to BC High. And it wasn't until I got down to Dorchester where I really started dropping the eyes. But uh, it's funny how that works. It's, it's, a very, um, it's a very interesting thing, the way that tends to go. Um, in any event, the next question. Uh, so normally, uh, you know, in normal times, we actually have a studio uh, on BC's campus that we would use for this. But unfortunately, these are not uh, normal times. And we can't be doing that, which is why we're doing this as we do uh, many things over Zoom. Um, so I wanted to just ask about that, how it is, um, you know, doing meetings, kind of operating local government via Zoom. So I'm just curious, you know, operating local government, you know, hearing constituents, meetings, how does that look uh, in, you know, the more virtual times that we're in? You know, are there challenges to that, benefits, kind of what's been your experience with that? Yeah, so in some ways, it's actually easier for people to participate, because if you have physical challenges, if you have kids at home, uh, for whatever reason, if you can't really leave your house to go to City Hall at night, in the old days, you could watch our meetings on new TV, or I guess on cable and new TV. Um, actually, just our main meetings, just our full city council meetings, our committee meetings weren't televised. So you just wouldn't be able to access them. And now you can access them via Zoom. So in that way, I mean, sometimes we've had, you know, dozens of people that uh, before we wouldn't have had. So that part is actually better, but I think, um, you know, in terms of what's worse, just not being in person with your colleagues, not being in person with members of the public, not being able to chat in the hall after a meeting, it's, you know, it's, it's more impersonal, just like we're all so sick. Well, I shouldn't speak for everyone else, but for me, um, definitely sick of spending my day on Zoom. You know, I have my day job and then city council at night. So, you know, nine, 10 hours of Zoom, it gets old and feels isolating. So I am looking forward to us being back in person. However, I do hope that we, um, and I will advocate for us to continue to make our meetings available online, all of our meetings online, and ideally so that people can even participate. Maybe people can be you know, um, videoed in or can participate on a screen and not just if they're there in person. Oh, you know, definitely for sure. I've noticed, you know, even, you know, in my, in my law classes, whereas before, you know, if you're not there, you missed the class. Now you've got recordings, you can tune in virtually. And I think it sort of opens a lot of opportunities that I don't think people realized before, you know, even though I think we're all kind of sick of looking at the world through zoom, it does, you know, sort of make things more accessible um, and more convenient for a lot of people. And I think, you know, it's especially important in terms of local government. And I know, uh, you know, when you go vote in certain elections, like local elections, you'll put your ballot in the machine. It'll say, you know, 20 people voted, you know, and it's just, obviously there's not a, as much uh, you know, participation in local government as you know, we'd hope. And I think the more people can get involved, I guess you know, Zoom can help with that, uh, obviously the better. So I think there have been, you're definitely right, there's been some sort of unforeseen benefits, you might say, um, to, to sort of doing things uh, this way now, but hopefully you know, we can get back to normal in, uh, in, a, in a number of respects going forward. Building off that, 
obviously we don't even, we don't just have to be safe now in the pandemic, uh, but we also have to be safe in the long haul. We have to make sure that we end the pandemic as soon as possible and also prepare for what we now almost have to be aware of and realize by, by virtue of the lessons that come from going through an experience like this. And you mentioned, Council, that you're an environmental advocate. Uh, you're obviously um, well-researched and uh, well-informed on climate change, these types of issues. My question for you is what is the intersection between, what is the connection between climate change, environmental advocacy, and public health? How, how do those things speak to each other? So there are a very obvious connection, um, though you wouldn't know it by the way we are treating um, climate change. So um, I don't know how much you've, you know, how much you read the science and so forth, but uh, every single year, it is increasingly clear that the predictions that climate scientists have made, the worst case scenarios are no longer the worst case scenarios. They are sometimes the moderate or even best case scenarios. So um, the, the activities that we've been carrying out since the industrial revolution, particularly burning of fossil fuels, um, is causing significant changes to our climate that we are already seeing here in Massachusetts. And when I used to say that, you know, you kind of get blank stares. Now it's people, people get it, especially people in Massachusetts. Mass Inc has been doing polling. And um, now I think the latest poll was at 88% of Massachusetts voters, not residents, voters think that climate change is um, serious or very serious. Uh, issue that should be dealt with. You wouldn't know that by the way our state legislature um, addresses it. And I think even at the city level, we there is more that we could and should be doing. Um, and there were already issues related to fossil fuel burning in terms of um, air quality in particular and respiratory diseases when we used to have coal plants in Massachusetts and the asthma rates increasing near those coal plants. So that was already an issue, but now with climate change, with flooding, heat. So in terms of weather extremes from climate change, heat actually kills more people every year than storms um, or flooding. And that is going to continue. You're probably aware of the Chicago heat wave um, from, it was 1995. There's, but that, that is going to continue. And um, it used to be that we would say we have to worry about our children and grandchildren. Well, I'm in my 50s and I will be seeing some really extreme effects. And my kids in particular, and you in particular, and your kids will really be seeing some very extreme um, effects. People are going to be having to move in um, off the coasts. And the people who are gonna have the toughest time are the people that are already having the toughest time, which we, we've seen with Hurricane Katrina um, and every other hurricane and storm since then. It's people who are low income, people of color, the elderly who don't have the means to easily move. Um, in fact, there was even um, a study done that after Katrina, white people in the area actually did better. Black people did worse, white people did better because of um, having access to insurance and knowing how to work the system um, and to be able to, um, to, to um, rebuild their lives. So that's what's coming. And so in my, whether it's my city council work or my day job as environmental advocate, um, I try to you know, make things uh, happen a little bit faster in terms of addressing these things. Have you, either of you heard of the, um, the, the, the impetus for the EPA, the Cuyahoga River catching on fire that led to the creation of the Environmental Protection Agency? You heard about that? So I was preparing for a speech a year or so ago and, um, I, and I, in reading about it, I, I wasn't aware of this. It actually didn't catch on fire once. It caught on fire repeatedly like well over a dozen times. It was just a chronic thing that happened was the Cuyahoga River, a river of water catching on fire. And I can't remember whether what it was about that last time that made national news and people freaked out and was like, oh, we need to you know, protect our environment more. But I just find that so um, revealing about human nature that nope, we can't just have the two by four between the eyes once. We need it over and over and over until we are like, oh wow, we should probably take this seriously. 
For sure. Uh, and just to, just to switch gears a little bit, I just wanted to ask about, uh, and I think, you know, you alluded uh, to this a little bit at the beginning, you know, there's obviously, I think, you know, if it's fair to say there's big things happening in Newton, I think, you know, even myself being uh, on the younger side, there's definitely, you know, a lot that's different from, you know, when I was a kid, I mean, I remember walking through, uh, you know, Newtonville going to get my hair cut at uh, Joe's Barber there in Newtonville on the corner of, I think, Washington Street and Walnut Street, if I'm not mistaken. And that's, you know, now a, a large development there that I think they're just, uh, you know, finishing up. There's obviously the Northland development, other, uh, you know, things that are in the works. And it seems like things are, you know, changing pretty rapidly in Newton. There's been a lot, uh, I think about, you know, in, in West Newton Square, there's been a lot of road work down there. And it just seems like there's a lot of construction, a lot of things changing everywhere you go. Uh, I know the Boston Globe uh, at times I saw refer to Newton as Club Newton because it's a, like a place a lot of people want to live. Um, and it just seems like there's a lot going on and just kind of w- what are your thoughts on that? And kind of what's the direction, uh, you know, the city's trying to steer itself in and kind of how are you preparing for the future? So one of the most overused words when you're discussing public policy is trade-offs. But so much, so many times it really does come down to trade-offs. So here we are in Newton. We have this benefit of being a really desirable place to live, which means a lot of people want to move here. And from basic supply and demand, from microeconomics, when a lot of people want something and the supply is limited, the price goes up. So if you're someone like um, my mom, who's been here for years and years, or someone who bought a house decades ago, you've done well. My mother bought our house for $56,000. It's worth now well over a million. Um, even though it needs a ton of work, but that's another issue. Um, so people who've been here a while, they really benefited, but people who want to move here, there are no starter homes anymore. So what do you do about that? Um, what we have been doing is um, really rolling out the red carpet for some big private developers, and that's one way to do it. But generally, they're, you know, they're not in this for... Um, you know, to, to um, as a nonprofit, when you're a profit making uh, venture, you're looking to make money on it. So most of the units that they build are very, very expensive and they are also rentals. Um, I just from watching what people, what companies choose to do, it uh, is clear that they must make more money off of rentals. So, um, you know, when you have a teeny tiny bit of affordable housing in these huge projects, um, with very high rents, um, it really changes uh, the neighborhood. And as I was telling you before, the part of Newton that I grew up in was very moderate before, a lot of blue collar homes. We didn't really have luxury developments. We didn't really have luxury housing. Um, so that's a big change that some people welcome and some people don't. Um, and it doesn't necessarily quote unquote solve our affordable housing problem in that it doesn't make Newton affordable. It doesn't make so that anyone who wants to live here can live here. And so that's attention. Um, how much affordable housing should we be trying to create through these large developments? Um, should we be trying to have the government do more? I would like to see uh, the city do more to sort of roll out the red carpet for some of the nonprofit developers. Um, but that's, you know, those are some choices we have to make. Another thing is we would like to be promoting more um, people to not drive, right? Um, brings pollution, congestion, so forth, uh, climate change. but. Again, we can do development near transit, but when the state is not partnering with us, even pre-pandemic, there were a lot of limitations in our public transportation so that it's pretty hard to be in Newton um, without a car. We're not downtown Boston, we're not New York City, not even Cambridge. And now post-pandemic, the MBTA is uh, drastically cutting service or planning to, there's gonna be some hearings in the coming weeks about that. So, there's no, um, there's no easy solution. Sometimes when you look at the public discussion, it's like, oh, if you support this, you're a good person. If you don't, you're a bad person. And the Boston Globe in particular loves to portray anyone in Newton, you know, who opposes some of these big developments is clearly doesn't like poor people, is a racist, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm like, um, a lot of the people that I know that are asking some of these questions, you know, people of color are asking these questions. Low-income people are like, how does that help me? I wanna buy a home, I don't wanna rent. I mean, some of the affordable units in these new developments are actually more expensive than some of the existing housing that's here. Some of the rentals, um, I mean, there's rentals near me, one bedrooms that go for 1500 a month. Now they're not fancy, they're not brand new. There's no Viking range and granite countertops, but those are ex- existing units that people live in. So um, so that's, you know, it's just, it's just very complicated and there's no easy solution. Another big challenge that Newton faces, a lot of communities face, but Newton's is particularly challenging, is our unfunded liabilities. So years ago, we promised our retirees when it came to pensions and their health care, 
but we did not set aside the money. So we have a liability of over a billion dollars. Newton alone has over a billion dollar liability. And that's not gonna pay itself back. So we need to be thinking about how can we be making money? How can we be making money? And when we build residential and people move with families as they should, um, that brings education costs. Whereas when we build um, commercial, the tax rates for commercial development, we charge, we, we charge commercial properties a much higher tax rate, almost double the tax rate, and they don't bring as many costs as residential. So that's another thing that we have to keep in the mix. If we don't deal with this, we need to raise taxes on our existing residents, which disproportionately harms the low and moderate income people that are already here. Even if you're renting, your landlord is not gonna, you know, probably not going to absorb tax increases. They're gonna pass it on to their renters. So, so it's just very complicated. There's not, there's not an easy silver bullet. I wish that there were. If there were, I always tell people this about public policy. When something's easy, we generally do it. It's the hard things that haven't been done. Why? Because they're hard. So one of the questions I want to ask about is one of the proposals that's been, uh, you know, debated. Newton, as I'm sure you're uh, aware, is in, with regard to zoning and uh, single, uh, you know, there's SR1, SR2, et cetera, and sort of eliminating that scheme and sort of going towards something that, you know, uh, incentivizes more multifamily housing. Basically, the idea is, uh, and I'm sure, you know, you're much more up to speed on this than I am, but to basically incentivize increasing the, uh, you know, inventory of housing in Newton. I know that that's something that a lot of people have a lot of different feelings about. I know that one of the things that makes Newton desirable is obviously, you know, it's, it's leafy. There's a lot of, uh, you know, single family homes. And, you know, when you change that, maybe some of those qualities um, start to go away. And it's obviously something that's uh, debated. I know in a lot of places sort of tend to have these debates. Um, what are your thoughts on that proposal? I know that, you know, there, there's obviously some ideas that come to mind. One is, you know, I, I've heard people say that, you know, the, the price of housing in Newton is also a function of, you know, what's going on with housing and all the neighboring communities. And, you know, you can't necessarily fix that uh, with that type of proposal. I've heard other people say that, you know, it would take decades of development to sort of uh, materially uh, affect the inventory. And, you know, I think there's a lot of different, you know, feelings. There's obviously a need uh, for, for housing and for more inventory in the, in the market within Newton and certainly locally. So what are your thoughts on that uh, proposal and that issue? And just kind of what are you hearing from, from people uh, on that matter? Yeah, so again, it's complicated. Um, the goals are not super clear on what, uh, what we're trying to achieve with the zoning redesign. And the beginning it was, oh, we have so many non-conforming um, units because so much of uh, Newton's housing was built before we even had zoning. Now it seems to have turned more into as a way to create more affordable housing. But even, uh, even those who are advocates for this agree that housing is not like paper towels that, oh, we'll build more and then the price will come down. Newton is such a desirable place. We literally have people from all over the world who buy homes in Newton. So, um, so I don't think that if we just, um, you know, open up single family zoning to multifamily zoning, um, that that would create more affordable housing. Um, we've seen, we're seeing this all the time that an $800,000 ranch gets bought, torn down, and you have two one and a half million dollar condos that go in on that site. So I think it, that if that's, if that's all we do, then we're going to create a lot of housing potentially, but it wouldn't be cheap housing. It wouldn't be affordable housing. Um, so what I am looking for in this is um, some sort of strings to be attached to this so that it would actually have to be more um, affordable and maybe not super cheap, but maybe not one and a half million dollars. So for example, if it were smaller, I mean, if we, instead of 4,000 square foot homes, if you have 1500 square foot homes, so maybe if on a site that currently has a single family home, if you're gonna have two, well, at least one of them would have to be 12 to 1500 square feet. I would be interested in seeing some kind of limitations like that um, before supporting it. You know, you do hear from a lot of people that what they moved to Newton for is because it's so leafy and suburban and it's not super um, congested. It's got trees, it's got green space that, you know, you hear over and over. If I wanted, I used to live in Cambridge or Somerville or Boston. If I wanted that, I would have stayed there. I moved to Newton because I wanted it to be more like Newton. Having said that, I do think we can have more development near our transit centers, um, near the bus stops, even with all the limitations, I don't think people are going to take the bus everywhere for the most part. But even if they're taking the bus or train more than they would have if they didn't live near it, that's still a good thing. We could have more housing near our village centers. And we are doing that already. 
But if we're going to open up the whole city to more, um, you know, to, to homes everywhere, then I would want to see some sort of steps taken to make them um, more affordable. We've been talking a lot about the affordability and access to Newton. I want to shift maybe slightly and talk about as Newton is where it is today. You talk a lot about on, on your website, and I know uh, these issues are important to you, democracy and social responsibility. What responsibility, obligation, duty does Newton have to its neighboring towns, to its larger community? Where, where does Newton fit in that picture? Um, well, as a city councilor, I'm elected by the residents, by the voters of Newton. So that is my primary responsibility is to them. Having said that, um, Newton is an influential community, particularly when it comes to the environmental issues. Um, I've seen that when we do things, other communities follow us. So the plastic bag ban was just one example. We were number eight, but I think there's over 150 communities or something like that in Massachusetts now. Um, when I led on changing the name from alderman to city councilor to get rid of gender in the term, um, I think that it wasn't the only community that did that, but it helped um, the domino effect of getting rid of the term alderman, which I believe is gone now from every community in Massachusetts. And now you're seeing uh, select boards rather than board of selectmen. So we are a community that other communities follow and Massachusetts is a state that other states follow. So in that way, I do think that what Newton does has rever reverberations beyond, uh, beyond our borders. And so when it comes to housing, I do think that we should be uh, creating more housing, not only um, for this affordable housing reason, but also, as I was saying earlier, we don't know when it's happening, but we know that places that people currently live are not going to be livable at some point, probably in our lifetimes. So we're talking Cape Cod, we're talking the North End, we're talking a lot of our coastlines. So those people are gonna to need to move somewhere. So communities that um, are still livable in a climate change world are going to have to host more people. Um, so that's that's another reason I think that we need to be, to be doing more. But where do you draw the line? I mean, should we have 20 story apartment buildings along Washington Street? Should we have skyscrapers? I haven't heard anyone calling for that, right? And in theory, that would be more housing. So. You know, I've tried to draw the line more or less along Washington Street of like, well, let's keep them to five or six stories or less. There was a proposal for 10 stories, which is where, what the uh, Crown Plaza is, although I don't think it's Crown Plaza anymore, but whatever that hotel is in Newton Corner now. Um, that seems, that seemed to me, I want to draw the line there. To me, that was too high. Um, but everyone, you know, that's a judgment call. Um, we're seeing, we are seeing a proposal come in at the Whole Foods. Um, we're seeing the Washington Place project. They want to expand to Lowell Lab. So we know that more big development is coming. And I think particularly as people get used to what's already there, you know, five stories, then, I mean, some people will still hate it. And then others might be like, eh, I'm getting used to it. It's okay. And that's kind of how change will happen. I do think that um, we do need to keep in mind that um, this is with my uh, Charles River Watershed Association hat on from my day job. You don't want to have too much impervious surface. That causes flooding. Um, climate change in this area means more water, means more intense storms in short bursts than we've ever seen. Our stormwater system isn't built for that. So we really want to maintain at least some level of natural ground cover because otherwise we are really gonna live to regret it. Um, so that's just something that we also just need to be really careful of. We can't, we don't, we don't just wanna pave over everything, not only because it's, um, you know, unpleasant to look at, um, but it's not healthy for the planet. And it's not healthy for us. And if I can just follow up on that quickly, something that I've really appreciated about our conversation is this insistence and focus on trust, making decisions, leadership, that there are things that need to get done. They're hard, they're difficult. That's why we have people that we elect that solve problems. In terms of your own theory, and you've spoken to this a little bit, in terms of your own theory of politics and governance, how does that look? How does that work? You've spoken about trust going out there, and yes, you have so many friends by living in the area, you grew up there, but at the same time saying, hey, I'm going to do what I think is right. I'm going to have reasons for why I do it. 
but I know that not everyone's always going to be happy all the time. How, how do you approach that? Yeah, so that is an excellent question. And um, even more and more now, your elected officials are doing things in the dark. And I don't mean breaking the law or being sneaky, but when I was a kid growing up in Newton, I was a paper girl. They don't have paper girls and paper boys anymore, but I delivered the Newton News Tribune. It was one of two daily newspapers in Newton. People paid $1.75 a week, if memory serves. Daily papers with reporters and news. Now we're down to just the Newton tab. It's once a week. Even a few years ago, there was an editor and one or two reporters. Now there's just one reporter. So there's no way that she can cover everything going on in Newton, which means we're having all kinds of meetings that people aren't aware of, because even with all our Zoom meetings with 86,000 people living in Newton, most of them are not tuning into our meetings, even though they might want to know what we're doing. But there's no one boiling it down for them on a daily or weekly basis. There's no one, um, certainly not anyone doing any investigative reporting. So that um, that makes it really, really hard because everyone behaves better when people are watching. So there's just much less accountability. Then add to that that there's really low voter turnout for municipal elections. And I used to say, well, I used to say, you know, whoever the president is doesn't really affect your life compared to your local official. And yet so many people vote for president and don't really pay attention to their local races. Like a, the highest turnout race that I've ever been in was the last one where I had an opponent it was 37% turnout. Like that's pathetic. So when you have um, when you have us operating in that situation, I don't think you're going to get the best. And I don't. Hopefully, I'm not talking about myself. I think I always give my best. But that's just something that people should be aware of. That it's it's harder to know what's going on, which means it's harder to hold people accountable. And at least at your local level, we have to comply with the open meeting law. At the state level they exempt themselves from the open meeting law. So they really can do things behind closed doors. And that means that people who have more money, that means special interests just have more, um, have more influence. So I do do a newsletter once a month that you probably saw on my website so that people can be aware of what's going on. I don't pretend to be an investigative journalist in that. I'm, you know, obviously I have my perspective on things. I do try to keep people informed and I think people appreciate it. And I know a handful of other counselors do newsletters as well, but that is no substitute um, for actual news. So that's, that's the environment um, that we are in right now. It absolutely does. If you're going to run in order to be popular, and if you're going to make decisions based on who's going to be angry, then you are eventually going to make everyone angry because people are going to, they're going to get your number. Um, sometimes the people who don't really like so much of the development have been happy with me, but those same people weren't happy with me that I was, uh, had no problem with marijuana shops. And then sometimes the right-wingers really love me because I don't like wasting money and I periodically vote against the budget if I think we're wasting money, but they don't really like that I wanna ban plastic bags and ban plastic bottles and all this kind of stuff. Um, so there's that, I don't know who it was, Truman or someone who said it's, it's you know, if you want a friend in Washington, get a dog or that it's lonely. Sometimes it can, it can be because, you know, <laughs> I mean, this latest thing, I was one of the leaders on, converting uh, Columbus Day to Indigenous Peoples Day. And even people I grew up with are so, you know, people, you know, who viewed Columbus Day as Italian Heritage Day, really angry, really disappointed. But I strongly felt that it was the right thing to do. Um, so, you know, that's, that's, that's just part of the job. That's how I approach the job. I think that's the right way to, do, to approach the job um, is do at the end of the day, what you think is right. And, um, and hope that the people who liked you and respected you, at least enough of them, at least 51% of them will continue to support you. To me, you're, you're speaking the, the language of leadership, the, the philosophy of governance. And I, I so appreciate that. And to me, that central question of why, why are you here? Why are you doing this? Why do you want this? Coupled with leading on public discussion rather than waiting leading from behind, where does everyone fall? Okay, I'll do some math, I'll do some arithmetic, and I'll just stick my finger up in the wind and say, oh, that's where the wind blows, that's where I go. Lead from ahead. Do what you think is right. You have information, you have knowledge, you have a worldview. Go out there and do what's right by that standard and try to persuade, try to talk, try to converse. 
I, I think that that gets us headed in the right direction. So I, I very much appreciate that perspective and thank you for it. Well, thank you. And it's not, you know, I'd like to say that I always act like a grown up, but sometimes, you know, you can't help if you care. And I think every one of the city councilors cares. So sometimes you get mad at people, but over time, you know, especially me, I have bad memory. I, you know, I get over things, um, but you also need them and they need you. So another really gratifying thing about being in public office is that it does force you to be a grown up. You, you know, you can hold a grudge if you want, but it's going to hurt you the next time you need someone's vote on something. Uh, one last question. I think Kevin has one last question. Uh, I just want to ask about uh, early in this, well, for us, it's still, it's called a semester, but uh, earlier, you know, this year in September uh, in Newton, there was a bit of an issue uh, with respect to, you know, Boston college and the coronavirus situation we had uh, well, I, you know, I can only speak for myself. I wore my mask and did everything the way you're supposed to, but some of our younger uh, students, you know, in undergrad, uh, you know, in the college, there was an uptick uh, between, you know, you know, sports teams and, you know, sort of some other uh, contingents there had a lot of positive cases of coronavirus and so it was sort of, you know, cause for concern uh, locally on uh, the city. I know the mayor had, you know, strong thoughts on that. I know a lot of people just talking to neighbors are, you know, are concerned because you have people who live in, you know, off campus in Newton and, you know, shop and, and do different things and everybody's concerned about uh, that these days. And so it seems like that's kind of, you know, tapered off, you might say, as, as time's gone on. But in that early, um, you know, so part of our semester there, there was a lot of, you know, concern and a lot of people, uh, you know, with, with opinions about that. Do you know, uh, just from the city's perspective, kind of what was going on there, what the attitudes were was because so our campus, our law campus, just to be precise, uh, is in it's fully within Newton, whereas the main campus is kind of, you know, Chestnut Hill borders a lot of different, uh, you know, municipalities there. But with respect to the law campus and you know, it also houses a lot of the freshmen. That's where freshman dorms are. Um, do you know if there was any sort of, you know, discussions about, you know, uh, making the school go remote or concerns there? Kind of how, how far did those concerns go when things were really going haywire uh, back in September? So I wasn't in the room when the mayor was making decisions about how to pressure BC or what to say to BC. I will say that I was contacted by more than one constituent with photos of the BC athletes um, practicing and not wearing masks. And so I did reach out to um, the government affairs uh, person for Boston College to say, so I'm getting these photos, what's going on? And she, she to her credit, keeps me updated on your COVID counts. And I think by the time that happened, they started going down. But you know, as you can imagine, being in our position, who prepared us for a pandemic? You know, our board of health, I mean, the poor gal who runs our board of health, like boards, local boards of health are used to dealing with like, you know, making sure the kids aren't buying cigarettes or, you know, the, the stores aren't selling cigarettes to people who are under 21, rats in restaurants, like pandemic is not something that you're trained on. Certainly it's not something I was ever trained on or the mayor. And then of course, you know, having the complete dereliction of duty from the federal government. So you get the state trying to figure out what to do. So, and then early on, like, you know, we're all washing our groceries. Well, it turns out you don't need to wash your groceries. It turns out the mask and the indoor stuff is what matters the most. Maybe not so much those photos that I was sent. So you had a lot of, I think, general panic about what was going on and what we should be doing. You know, people were looking at us, you're a city council, you're the mayor, you should be doing something. So that, you know, so then you sort of, um, in turn, look to the institutions in the city who are doing things or not doing things. And so I think that, you know, there was just sort of a little bit of pandemonium uh, basically about that. So I haven't heard anything recently. It seems like, you know, the, the college has, um, you know, has addressed this with the students more and more. I did attend, so I'm on the Boston College Liaison Committee, which is a group of counselors from Ward 7 and Ward 2, uh, which is where Boston College is within Newton, um, with some of the folks uh, from Boston College talking about all the steps they were taking with kids who live off campus and so forth and all the testing and so forth. So that seemed very reassuring um, to me. So I, I haven't heard anything more recently, but that I think is really what happened early on. It was just, you know, a lot of justifiable panicking and a lot of folks didn't have answers because it was so early and no one knew anything. As we were talking about earlier, uh, uh, living in Zoom world, always looking at a screen, it is uh, it's a whole other, whole other situation. And, you know, who knew that not being able to see people, go anywhere or talk to anyone would have such a profound effect. <laughs> Uh, I did. I did ask 
if there are opportunities at the school, I think I was more think, thinking about the undergrad, but if there were opportunities for the kids to be in person in small groups outdoors, I can tell you whenever I have the chance to meet with someone in person, whether it's at Cafe Nero in Newtonville, you know, we can be across the table from each other, whether we're wearing masks or if we're far enough apart, I always uh, wanna do that. So I had changed my office hours to be virtual I used to do office hours at the senior center every um, once a month. And then when this all hit, I made them virtual. No one came. So I was like, you know what? Screw it, going back in person. So my last, so then the August ones, I did them outside Cafe Nero, it was wonderful. I had, I think eight people there. And then the one in October, it was the day before Halloween. It was like 30 degrees and snowing, but I was like, I'm outdoor, I'm, I'm doing it. And <laughs> I did have three people come. Um, we were sitting in the picnic table under the Austin Street parking garage, but we were outdoors and it was just so nice to be in person. That's pretty so, good. Um, so that's what I, you know, that's how I've been handling, you know, is when I, whenever I can meet in person with someone socially distant and outdoors, um, I still will. On Halloween, we put a fire pit out in the front lawn, neighbors came by, um, it was lovely, it was 30 degrees, um, but you know, because otherwise it's going to be a long winter indoors. Um, stuck with your family. I think, I think we need as much social connection, as much staying together, as much solidarity as possible while being smart, while being responsible. We have a mission. I wish it were, I wish it were otherwise. I wish we had really uh, gotten the most control possible out of the preceding months, but no doubt we, we have a mission. We have to do this now. And, and that really gets into uh, the, this final question and really something that we've been talking about throughout, but something that I, I want to explore fully with you. Uh, local, local politics, right? It's something we've been talking about this whole conversation. So many people in the past have said local politics, much as you did counselor, uh, local politics is the arena of the most important issues, the most day-to-day -day concerns for the community. Now, people are saying local politics represents our best hope, <laughs> represents the best opportunity going forward because it's not as divided as federal politics. And we can begin to display and project and illustrate, demonstrate unity, social cohesion, and maintain good policy. So in your estimation, in your view, what does local politics represent? What opportunity does it have? Can it create? And can it live up to that high calling and mission? There are some things we can do, but there's, we should be realistic about the limitations. So when it comes to the environment, we, uh, Newton would love to move forward with a, um, with a building electrification incentive program where we really would not allow um, fossil fuel infrastructure in new construction. And it turns out we can't. It's not allowed under state law. So we need the state to partner with us. We are doing all this development and transit-oriented development, but we need the state to partner with us um, to, to have robust public transportation. So those are just a couple examples. I mean, when you get to the affordable housing, now this would be a big change, but why, why is Newton so desirable? Because of our schools. Why are our schools so desirable? Because if you don't live in Newton, you can't go to our schools. Why do we have a system set up where only the schools in wealthy communities are good? That's one reason I am so open to charter schools or innovation schools. So you can live in maybe a community that's not as, that's not as uh, expensive or prestigious, but still send your kid to a great school, a great public school. I think that we should be, you know, as we're talking about and thinking about racial equity, you should not be stuck with with your kid going to a, a, a mediocre or middling school because you can only afford to be in Mattapan. You shouldn't have to be able to afford Newton or Weston or Wayland to send your kid to a great school because we all know that education is the absolute key to, um, to a real future in this country. So, but we can't do that by ourselves. Newton participates in the Metco program, which is fabulous but that's 400 kids. There are thousands of kids who need a great education in Massachusetts. And so I think we should be having that conversation about how we fund public schools and who gets to go to which public schools. 
Very fair. Very good points. Uh, it's it's certainly uh, it's you know education. I know that you know Newton, uh, you know Wellesley, some of these areas. You know those are you know people. Uh, you know families face real struggles. You know to make having to make a lot of sacrifices just to get themselves to live in a place where uh, you know their kids can get that kind of education. It certainly uh, opens a lot of big questions. Um, you know, for, for, for us to kind of grapple with, I know, you know, we're, I'm fortunate, Kevin's fortunate. We were able to, you know, not only, you know, I was able to go to public school in Newton and then later, you know, it's a private school, but it's, uh, I think for a lot of us who kind of, I think, you know, disproportionately end up in, you know, positions of leadership, it's, you have to remember that not everybody, you know, kind of gets those advantages and it's something that's, uh, definitely a big issue. And it's something that, uh, I think people really need to take seriously. So as part of um, my work at CRWA, I wanted us to be doing more in the, in the area of racial equity. I feel like the work we do, uh, protecting communities from climate change and flooding and so forth, and knowing that people who suffer that most are low income and so forth, I feel like that is true, but I wanted something more tangible. So I put together a webinar on jobs in the water and wastewater field, because no one ever thinks of these jobs, but they are good jobs, good paying, interesting. You don't have to be in an office all day. And it's a lot of old white guys in them and they're about to retire, a lot of them. And so it's like, well, what can we be doing to get you know, people of color and low income folks? So I profiled a few, um, had speakers from a few different programs that try to direct kids into these. And then I had a couple kids who've been in through these programs to ask them about their experience. This one kid, um, Brandon, who had been the valedictorian at his Boston high school, talked about um, how he would never have known about these jobs if he had it. Now he has this internship at Woodard and Kern. But one of the things this program, it's called Excel Education, um, that, that did for him was they helped him get a learner's permit. And then they helped him get his driver's license. And he said that his mom was afraid of driving. And so he thought he would never get a license because he just didn't think it was something that he could do. And I'm listening to this like, are you freaking kidding me? No kid in Newton worries about that. You know what I mean? Or at least very, very few. It was just a reminder that like, you can show kids, oh, there's these jobs, but a lot of kids need a lot more help than that. And um, I also thought about all the times that kids like you actually, whether it's law students or undergrads or whatever, reach out to me. Maybe they're a friend of a friend or someone and say, oh, I wanna talk about my career. Can I ask you some questions? And I'm like, yeah, of course. Anyone ask me, literally, even if it's like two months in advance because I'm so busy, I will always make a half hour time for whoever reaches out to me. But you know what? Poor kids don't reach out to me. People of color don't reach out to me. It's wealthy white people who reach out to me, college students, you know? And I, not only do I give them a half hour of my time, I open up my network. I say, hey, call this person, call this person. I connect them. And I was like, how do we bridge that gap? I'll help anyone, but I, I don't really have the time to like go seek out people who don't have as much advantage um, to help them. Like how, what more can we be doing? So I am very interested in what more a Newton could be doing, what someone like I could be doing, what kids with your background could be doing so that we can be bridging this gap and making up for 400 years of um, doing things wrong and leaving people behind. I mean, I'm able to be a Newton because my mother bought this house and she was able to buy that house because her parents helped her. But if you never had that, because back in the day you couldn't get a job or you were you know, redlined from a community, then now you have way less money. What do we do now to make up for that? Um, those are just things that I think about and wrestle with and I don't obviously have all the answers, but just wanted to, leave you with that. Um, but something that's really, um, you know, something that's important to be wrestling with. No, for sure. It, it is very important. I raise a number of good points, you know, just in terms of, uh, you know, barriers to entry and, you know, sort of the, some of the structural inequities and, uh, you know, the way things tend to work. I think particularly in, uh, you know, not only in Newton, but in Boston and in Massachusetts, this is certainly a place with, uh, you know, uh, has high barriers to entry, high cost of living. And, uh, it's, it's very hard to sort of, uh, you know, raise your position, you know, in the world, given, you know, some of the way these things tend to work. So you definitely raise uh, a lot of important questions there. Well, we don't want to hold you up anymore. It sounds like you have uh, important things to do. I want to yeah. thank you so much again uh, for coming on. This was great. A lot of great information. I'm sure people will be uh, really excited to learn more about. Uh, you know, I should have mentioned this, but city councils, we um, have no staff, no office. So a lot of the things I've done, particularly in the area of the environment, volunteers have helped me a lot research things even i had a state judge who volunteered with me she's the one who drafted the divestment ordinance that i led on so if any you know young people want to get involved whether it's city council or even at crwa we have law interns um more the merrier
Thank you, Council. Th this is it. This is the conversation we should be having. And I'm proud Massachusetts has you. This is oh, this is important. You. So thank, thank you. you for everything. Thank you so much. All right. Stay in touch. All right. Thank you very much. Bye bye. All right, Kevin, I think that was a pretty, uh, pretty interesting conversation. That was a lot more like thorough than I think. I mean, she really gave us a lot of great material and, and insight there. I mean, I don't know if you had a favorite topic in particular. I think mine, uh, I thought it was very interesting talking about, uh, you know, with, with housing, with zoning, kind of the, the different perspectives on that. Because I know, you know, just living in the city, uh, you, know, you got a lot of people who don't want to, you know, see things change that really like the, the, the character of the city the way that it is, but to really hear, uh, you know, sort of the nuts and bolts, you know, the, the, the inside, uh, you know, sort of perspective there on, uh, you know, at least one city councilor's, uh, you know, perspective on that, you know, you, you read things in the globe, you, you, you hear things, but to really hear what's going on behind the scenes, I thought that was, uh, it's pretty interesting, very, very informative stuff there. How, how did you feel? I completely agree, Tom. I think the thing for me that really stood out the most are the lessons that can be gleaned from a conversation like this, mm -hmm. right? There's no doubt that there are limitations on local government. And there's no doubt that every level of government needs to work as effectively as it can for the people to actually help things. But I love Councillor Norton's emphasis on solutions, on taking a stand, that I didn't get elected. I didn't come here to make friends. I did what I thought was right. And that was the best I could do. And I, I tried to persuade, tried to convince, but I'm here to do what is right. And how important is that today? I, I find it almost scarily relevant because what do we have right now? We have the first coup in America, the first insurrection sedition in America. And it's important to use those words. And what did Councilor Norton say in our conversation? How surprised she is by human nature that how many two by fours we need between the eyes till we wake up, till we learn something, till we realize something. As using Councilor Norton's uh, example, her comparison, the Cuyahoga River literally lit on fire 13 times. And it was the 13th time that people said, wow, this is a big problem. And of course, that's what led to the creation of the Environmental Protection Agency. So how is that relevant to right now? Well, We've been going through four years of the same, right? Not a coup, I'm not gonna say that, but laying groundwork and now here we are. It's important to call these things out for what they are. And I think the lesson of what Councilor Norton is talking about in terms of democracy and social responsibility, a theory of governance and leadership, this is what we're really talking about. And so for me, that's, that's what I gleaned from this. That's what I take away. And that's what I think needs to be talked about more. Again, local government is an important arena for setting an example where they don't have, and this is an insight I was thinking about when we were talking, they don't have the luxury of saying, where do I stand on this issue so that I make sure that I don't offend this person, but I want to get this person. I have a lobby over here. And, but well, this, I, I, I have to make sure that I'm aligning. They just need to fix things. And when someone comes to you with a problem that you know, your neighbor, you can't say, please hold as I align all of my incentives and ideas and thoughts so that I don't make anyone at all mad. And I'm not saying you should go out making people mad, but what I'm saying is when you understand why people are doing what they're doing, and when you make a good faith effort, you can respect the approach and the attitude and of course, we're going to disagree on the policies. We're going to disagree on ideas. But if I know you're coming to the table with a good faith effort and you actually want to be here and you want to get something done, we can disagree on the, on the minutia and even the big, the policy, the idea. But I know that you're here for the right reason and we can work on that together for that reason. That's deeply important to me. Kevin, I couldn't agree more. I mean, obviously, you know, the, the, the emphasis and in, in, in the time and, you know, that, that we spent here talking about, you know, to a local city council in a time where, you know, almost all of the sort of the, the, the vitriol, the heat, you know, the, the, the venom of our politics comes from the national level to really examine uh, what's going on at the local level. I mean, one of the things I was really, you know, shocked by was to hear our talk about the Newton tab, you know, a local, uh, local newspaper, you know, not uh, exactly the most well off. I mean, we're living in a time where local news uh, in every sure. city and town, not only in our state and in the country, uh, struggles to survive. I mean, there's just so much emphasis on, uh, you know, the national politics and, and, and the outrage and, and just making people upset and the money and the social media and all of that, that, you know, we, we sort of lose sight of what's going on at the local level, which is tremendously important in terms of, uh, 
you know, holding power to accounts, you know, you, you think about, you know, as, as part of our conversation, real estate developers and, uh, you know, some of what can go on behind the scenes in that, you know, area. There's uh, obviously the Northland development and other things in Newton, which uh, a lot of people had a lot of different opinions about. It's very important to know what's going on in our own backyard. And, you know, we're obviously living in a time where, uh, you know, just from a media perspective, from a from a government perspective, you know, we, we spend so much time hemming and hawing about what's going on in Washington that, you know, we sort of lose sight of, uh, you know, what's going on in our own backyards. And I thought it was really interesting uh, and really eye opening to hear, uh, you know, you know, sort of the, the, the struggle that there's only, you know, a, a few people operating this local paper. And it, it sort of makes you think about, you know, the, the expression democracy dies in darkness uh, to really not know, uh, you know, what, 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 what's really going on in our own community. It's uh, it's shocking. And I think really more than anything else, it's sort of uh, at least, you know, for, for myself and I'm sure for many others, uh, you know, really emphasizes even more, you know, the, the importance of local government, the importance of being involved in our community. I thought it was really interesting to hear. Well, I'll give you the flip side of what you just said, Tom. Democracy dies in the darkness. The other the other line that I was thinking about through our conversation here was sunlight is the best disinfectant. And what really got to me and, and, and I appreciated was Councilor Norton talking about accountability and transparency. Councilor Norton puts out a newsletter for her constituents to understand what is going on, what is happening. And luckily, Councilor Norton isn't alone on the city council. There's others that do so as well. This is also probably a good time to plug local government, Professor Farbman's class, this addressing exactly this topic, exactly this issue. And we should also say that BC law has a deep tradition of public service. Exactly what we're talking about here, working on solutions. And to be honest with you, Tom, this illustrates exactly what's at the core of the just law mission, which is the power of the law, the power to stand up and do something. Secret Secretary Kerry, Secretary John Kerry, now soon to be the United States, uh, United States Special Envoy for Climate, Secretary of State, Senator, Lieutenant Governor, everything that he's done in his career, 2004 uh, Democratic, uh, Democratic Party nominee for president. Um, Senator Mackey, another proud alum, beating a Kennedy for the first time in Massachusetts. Um, District Attorney Marion Ryan, representing Massachusetts' most populous county. Uh, Representative Stephen Lynch of uh, the 8th District of Massachusetts, uh, worked as an iron worker raising the rank, rising the ranks, becoming president of the union, and then saying, I'm, I'm keeping going. I want to keep doing more and keep getting involved and advocate for people and help people. And then uh, state's attorney for Baltimore County in Maryland, Marilyn Mosby. I was fortunate enough to sit in um, through the prosecution clinic. We sat in on Professor Cassidy's prosecutorial ethics class. The last class, he invited state's attorney Marilyn's, Marilyn Mosby to come in she is so motivational and inspiring. You want to run through a brick wall, okay? I mean, you 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 hear State's Attorney Mosby speak, and you're ready to go. So this is this is what we're talking about. This is the tradition. This is what's actually lived and needs to happen more. And luckily, uh, for students, as you and I talk about uh, outside of the podcast, the different opportunities to engage, experiences to engage and live right? To actually do what the law tells us and, and to craft the law, to, to uphold high standards and dignity. Things like uh, the civil litigation clinic with Pro Professor Minuskin and Professor Tremblay, um, the lawyer for a day program when you're in housing court and trying to help tenants who are being evicted. Uh, the COVID relief housing clinic, that is, this is BC responding to this eviction crisis. Uh, the CDC moratorium ends at the end of January. So what we have to do to respond to that over the summertime, COVID relief legal services that I was fortunate enough to participate in, working on unemployment claims, bankruptcy claims, um, eviction uh, defense generally throughout all these opportunities, and then consumer rights, consumer protection. So these, these are the opportunities that exist, but we have to keep pushing. You know, we have to keep going forward. And I think that's the the ultimate mission. That's that's what we're here for. And uh, absolutely, Kevin, hundred percent. I mean, I I think that 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 you know, just given the times that we're living in and all that's going on now, I mean, I think that it's important now more than ever, not for, only for you know people to really sort of understand you know the the the, the challenges that we've talked about, but be able to rise to the occasion, be able to become uh, you know leaders in our own community, whether that's uh, at the local or national level. We know that at BC Law. 
just so many, uh, you know, in our, in our community or, you know, uh, like, like we said at the local level, at the state level, and even now uh, with, uh, you know, Secretary Kerry there uh, going on to his new role, uh, you know, obviously the, uh, it is a live tradition, uh, like, 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 like Kevin says. And being able to engage with leaders, you know, things like the Rappaport Center uh, for Law and Policy, you know, when, when you're engaging with people who are decision makers, who have those lived experiences, that, that's, what, that's what's important. And we should also say, by no means is this only about BC law or that somehow, you know, it's only for the certain few. This is everybody. As we have talked about, and again, a core mission of just law, all hands are on deck. This is, not a, this is not a time to sit on the sidelines. This is not a time to wait this round out. We're all involved. We all have to bring all of our skills and our talents and our abilities and who we are to bear. Come to the front lines, come to the forefront. So this is the moment, this is the moment. And uh, I'm excited to talk more about this with you, Tom, and, and all of our hosts, Leah and Joanna. We're gonna have, well, there's a lot to say and our great producer, Mac, always doing his best, really helping us out, getting these things going, so. Yeah, he has to edit us. I mean, good God, I feel bad <laughs> for that guy. Ooh, let's just say that Mac does not, there's not enough money to pay Mac. We could, there's, there might not be enough on this planet to give Mac what he truly uh, deserves and, and should get credit for. But these are the conversations we need to have. And I'm, I'm excited and happy to be having them with you, Tom, and with the whole team. It's going to be great. Well, there you have it. I just want to say thank you again to Councillor Norton for coming on the show and say thank you to uh, my co-host, Kevin O'Sullivan, uh, for being here today and having these conversations. And thank you to you uh, for, for tuning in and to listening to all of us in these conversations and make all of this possible. So uh, it, it really is an important conversation. Uh, I'm glad we got to have it. I'm glad uh, that all of you got to listen. So thank you again uh, to the Councillor. Thank you for tuning in. And uh, we will catch you next time on Just Law.